This is Coda Radio, episode 118, for September 8th, 2014. everyone, and welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our excellent host, who is established on the East Coast, Mr. Michael Dominic. Hey there, Michael. I hate Miguel de Acasa so much. Whoa! Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hello. Hi. I'm Your mic's on now. Um, and, you know, no one doing that. Can't take that out of the show, so I guess that's going out top of the show. Hi, Mike. How you doing over there? I'm great. I, I somehow didn't sense that from your perhaps opening. Uh, I thought maybe you were feeling a little a little worked up over there. Uh, yeah, big... you, know, you know, it's uh, it's it's just negative in the freedom dimension. Inappropriate? Mm-hmm. Mhm. Uh so are you are you excited that tomorrow is the big uh big Samsung keynote? Yeah, I'm getting my S7, right? Yeah. That... I think so. All right. Why do you Okay, okay. I know we got a lot of show to get into, but what what's going on with you and Miguel? I thought you were all besties with Mono and uh So so for for live listeners, there's going to be a link in the show notes. Okay. A super secret link and that that's the reason. Now now you're gonna have to go ahead and uh, be a live listener. This is the kind of like a you know a treat for the live people, right? The recording people will never know the truth. Well, uh, wait a minute now. Wait a minute now. Uh, couldn't they just look at that link that you just posted in the chat room right there? And uh, well, and also, well, Overcast doesn't show the chat room, so I'm assuming they can. Oh, okay. Okay. You got a dog party going on over there? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, the dogs are ready to do my evil bidding. The dogs are like, oh, I guess the show started. Time to get up and dance. Yeah, well, <laughs> should certain people not fix their garbage collectors? I'm just saying. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit today? Do you want to – should we get into that later So on? we've been doing an experiment with uh, Xamarin Forms, and wow, is that a piece of shit. Whoa, really? No, it's actually not that bad. <laughs> it, it, it's a case of Android being a second-class citizen again. Oh, really? And I tend to take that extremely personally because I hate having to talk about Android. Oh, sure. Sure. Why, why not, right? Of course. Yeah. Wow. I feel like we got a lot of negativity to start. It's just throwing me all off. I got like a bunch of emails I was going to read. And now so, we're... so I, I'm trying to balance the Apple event, too. I'm balancing the I hype mm. with I hatred. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Admit it. You're uh, right. You're right. This is worst show ever now my phone's ringing this is the worst show we've ever done right here yeah answer the phone and i will tell that guy to go bang off i put him I, on the line i know i've already answered it. this call on two other shows they never they're never there i've already oh, done it the the uh the collection people i don't know it's it's somebody i actually i answered it once and they went through this whole automated process and i got impatient like right at the last question and i hung up so, do you know what i did when i first moved into this house i had a uh a collection agent call for someone who had the telephone number previous to me because, oh, you know, they reassign the number. I get that. I, I, well, I think that's yeah. what that is. I think that is what that so, is. After about a month of very politely saying, this person doesn't live here, please yeah. take me off the list. Absolutely, sir. We're taking you off the list. Right, right. I said, yes, I'm his father. My son shot himself in a bathtub last night. And I went into very graphic details with this guy on the phone. 
that, said he just couldn't take the pressure anymore. That's funny. You know, I, you know what I used to. So I've had similar problems, uh, and where I. Where I grew up, for some reason, we really were aggressively gone after by telemarketers. We probably have a dozen calls a night from like, you know, I got home from school before I went to bed. There'd be a dozen calls. So that's a lot if you think about it. That's And that even means like sometimes several phone calls during dinner, like maybe two or three calls while you're just trying to eat. And uh, the way we put a tamp down on that was... We started pretending like seriously awful things were happening in our household to get them to just stop calling. Well, you know, it's one of those things where we had to unplug our phone and then people would see like an unplugged phone and be like, oh, they must be having problems. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it was like your in-laws would come over and be like, hmm. It's like, no, 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 no. So so, uh, although I – you know, props to the debt collector. He actually said, well, sir, I mean, you're not legally obligated, but would you like to settle this account? I'm like, are you kidding me? I just told you they could have killed themselves. (laughs) I think that we should all make those businesses fail. Yeah, yeah. I really do. Yeah. So should we get into email? Because we got, we got stuff to talk about. Sounds like I only was... want really hate-filled emails today. <sighs> so, Egon, you're up. <laughs> well, uh, should we – I feel like this whole show is all out of whack now because I have like a really like uh, – we were going to help, we help out uh, listener Zach with some confidence problems. Maybe maybe we can turn this frown upside down. Here we go. So Zach writes in, and he says, okay, I'm not laughing at you, Zach. I'm just laughing because this is not the right email for after this intro. I might be, though, so let's, let's see. Okay, all right. I'm, I just, I'm, just, I'm giving myself a minute, you know, because i got to shift gears, Mr. Dominic. <clears throat> I'm not a machine over here. All right. So Zach writes in. He says he was recently laid off from a previous employer for what he originally presumed was to be general incompetence. He said he was told that my code was really bad, but that I just wasn't working fast enough. Or it wasn't really all that bad, but I just wasn't working fast enough for them. I was told that I would need to be out by the end of the month and that I shouldn't tell anyone that I was leaving until I got a new offer so they would just assume I decided to take another offer. After thinking about it, I feel like my employer's real motivation was to save face since he told the developers we would be safe from layoffs. I really feel like coding is what I want to do professionally for the foreseeable future. But I've lost some of my confidence after these recent events. How can I build yeah. my confidence as a coder as well as speed up my work? Does it seem like I'm reading into the situation too much or does my employer have a valid point? What so, do you think? so, yeah, there's a couple things here, Zach. It is more beneficial for your employer to fire you, not to lay you off for him. Because then you cannot um, claim unemployment and as unemployment insurance goes up, especially if you're actually not competent. Because he can say he fired you for gross incompetence, and that's um, depending on the state. At least in New Jersey, he would not be hit with an unemployment claim. Um, right, a layoff is more so costly. A layoff is costly to the employer, so mm-hmm. he's not doing he's doing you a favor with the layoff. It, it, um, it it's only in your benefit to be laid off, right? Because I don't know where you live, but particularly in New Jersey now, if you're fired, you're basically ineligible for unemployment. If for any cause, even like you should have played to work. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the, you know, unless he has some weird cultural thing that says his company doesn't fire people, which if he does, he's really stupid. Um, I mean, anyway, you could be fired for any number of reasons, right? Uh, the reason could be, you know, you looked at him the wrong way. The question is, do you feel, you know, do you have anyone? you could show your code to that's maybe a little more senior in the industry that mm. can tell you you know that someone who would be comfortable you know if it sucks telling you that you suck right mm-hmm. or if it's okay telling you that it's okay mm-hmm. the other thing might be you know 
I don't know what level you were, you were at in your current position. Is there maybe a rung or two down on the uh, chain of command that you could go, like a more junior position, and maybe do a little better? It's 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 really hard to talk about this kind of thing without knowing you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I would uh, you know I I would definitely not press the issue of the employer covering his ass with the layoff because he's he's only protecting you. And um, frankly, if I were him, it would not be a layoff. That's just not to me. That's it's it's not right because now you're in this position of uh, you don't know really what the problem was. Um, I always feel like it's kinder to tell someone outright. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but I'm also a heartless bastard. So well, yeah, maybe he wanted the uh, Zach to have the option of unemployment, or perhaps uh... maybe. I mean, it sounds like that's what he did. He wanted him to have the option of unemployment, so he he framed it in the in the wording of a layoff. Yeah, it, I mean, it's possible that he was also just downsizing, and so somebody had to go, and you were the one that got picked. Right. But yeah, I mean, that yeah. seems like that could also be a component of it. So uh, Jim writes in, and Jim's got a lot here. Uh, so, uh, Jim's got a lot, and then we've got another top email on this topic in a little bit, but, uh, I'll start with Jim's and it's on the, uh, the whole concept that came up after the celebrity photo leak. And perhaps maybe if Apple had the responsibility because they build in features to your phone that automatically in the background uploads your private information, in this case, photos, is there a responsibility on Apple's part to do a better job of potentially maybe giving the user an option to locally encrypt or something like that. Is there is there some responsibility? So Jim writes in and says, hey, Chris and Mike, regarding whether developers are morally responsible for the lack of security features in a service is putting the responsibility on the wrong party, I think. The business that pays those developers and provides these services in the marketplace is responsible for what features they provide, in my humble opinion. And frankly, the market should take care of it at least if people who are more informed about if if people were more informed about computer security. Now I would stop there and see part I I submit part of the problem is is that it is in the benefit of companies like Google, Microsoft and Apple and especially Apple to sell the cloud as a bit of a magic thing, don't think about how it works. That's why they don't call it IMAP, CardDAV, CalDAV, WebDAV and SFTP, right? They call it iCloud. Right. And there's a reason they don't call it XMPP, they call it iMessage, right? They want to make it sound a little magical. Of course, if the developer is paid to implement the security features requested by his client or employer and fails to properly implement said security features, then certainly the developer would be responsible. But I imagine that if either employee or contractor started adding unrequested features because it felt morally obligated to do so, he or she would at least get a stern talking to and more likely fired. It just occurred to me, what more responsibility does writing free software have and open sourcing it? It seems counterintuitive to me that doing something for free might imply a moral responsibility than getting paid for it. But I wonder if it does. Jim. I think where I think where I like where Jim's going with this is that it should be more like a selling feature. Like the, the market should pressure Apple into saying, we locally encrypt your data before it's even uploaded to the cloud, just like Spider Oak does. And And I know it's... What I'm saying is this general consumer electronics company should talk about something really complicated and and hard to the general public. Well, guess what? Sometimes it's really hard to be in the position that Apple's in. Good thing they're a company that's in the right position to do something about it. Financially and just with their history, they've moved their entire platform into incredibly complicated and hard directions that nobody would think is possible. I mean, there's when they did that switch to from PowerPC to Intel, did anyone think that would go as smooth as it actually did? 
I mean, at the end of the day, yeah. there's people that got left out. But damn, son. And that wasn't even their first CPU transition. And actually, to be fair, for the most part, the transition from uh, OS 9 to OS 10, application compatibility-wise, for a long time worked quite well. Uh, so could they s- implement some sort of system that was more secure if people wanted to enable it? I think they could. I think they could financially do it. They've got full control of the software stack. I think they should do it, and then the rest of the industry would follow suit. Just like if Google did something that was really awesome, the rest of the industry would follow suit. But they're not quite in the same position that Apple is. So uh, I-, I think maybe Apple should do it, but from a competitive standpoint, and say, hey, look, this is a feature. Okay. I don't. I guess I'm. I'm yeah. trying to say is I don't believe it's a moral obligation on the part of the individual developers sitting yeah, behind I the mean, desk writing the software. Yeah. No. The only moral obligation you have is to provide for your family, right? Mm-hmm. Everything else is. You know, that's like if you say, you know, you're negotiating a contract with a customer, and they're like, "Yeah, I, I need to go down a few. So can we just cut out all those security features?" <laughs> right. You're not obligated to then lower the price and throw them in for free, right? <laughs> like I, I, I think. It's really easy for especially folks who maybe aren't working in that kind of environment yet to be like, oh, you know, the code is the end of the day. The code is the most important thing, the technology. When the reality, you know, there are lots of, I mean, we've met them, companies out there who just, like, do we really need to encrypt that? Like, you know, couldn't we save a buck? Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and I so I guess I, I, I wish, Jim, that you were right in that the market was pushing it in that direction. I don't think it is, and I'm going to save further thoughts on that for the next email because it also kind of touches on this. But I think right now the market's kind of at a standstill. But I'll tell you about something that's not at a standstill. That's our first sponsor, and that's DigitalOcean. They just added CoreOS support. Now, it's just beginning, and they're going to be tracking CoreOS closely for a while. So keep your eye on this. This is a great opportunity to jump in and learn CoreOS on production hardware over on DigitalOcean. So have you heard about DigitalOcean? Let me tell you a little bit about them. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. Users can create a cloud server in under 55 seconds, and pricing plans start at only $5 a month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20-gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer connected to Tier 1 bandwidth because DigitalOcean has data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and a brand new one in London. And it's all controlled by this amazing, intuitive, simple interface that power users can even replicate on a larger scale with DigitalOcean's simple, straightforward API. It's the best of both worlds. And now with CoreOS support, you can build an infrastructure that theoretically could be started locally on your laptop. And then as that environment grew, it could be moved off onto local servers, on-premises servers. And then as it became time to deploy it to the public, it could be easily moved up to DigitalOcean. And then as it grew in popularity, you just add to the CoreOS cluster. And because you can use DigitalOcean's private networking, you could take advantage of CoreOS's etcd, the distributed configuration management system for CoreOS. So you get the best of both worlds. You get private networking, you get up in the cloud, you get data center locations all over the world, tier one bandwidth backed by SSD drives for incredible pricing. And if you use the promo code CODERSEPTEMBER when you check out, CODERSEPTEMBER will get you a $10 credit. You can try out a CoreOS rig, an Ubuntu rig, a CentOS, Debian, Fedora, for free for two months. When you use the promo code CODERSEPTEMBER, it'll get you that $10 credit. Or go learn CoreOS. What an amazing opportunity to get two months on DigitalOcean with CoreOS, your own infrastructure that you can test, play with, back up, snapshot, all of that. 
and really become competitive with a brand new up-and-coming operating system. It's got everybody's attention, and now you can use it on DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code CODERSEPTEMBER to get that $10 credit. Try out any of their rigs, the one-click deployments, the snapshots, the DNS management, and see why that SSD really, truly gives you that higher density. You don't need that big RAID array anymore. You've got an SSD drive. DigitalOcean.com and CODERSEPTEMBER when you check out. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. Okay, so I'm going to try to summarize Wolf's email. Wolf wrote in on the same topic about developers' security obligations. And he says, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, and then i got to summarize it because it's, it's, it is, uh, it's huge. It's, it's a huge email. Anyways, he says, I feel that if you're creating a service, you should take an oath to do no harm. In the medical field, for example, there are problems that arise because of incompetence as well as problems that arise from complications. The idea that if you amputate the wrong leg, then it's incompetence. But if you take a person in the ER and give them something to save their life and they die because they are allergic to it, then we can agree that that person would have died anyways, but how many others who didn't have this allergy would have been saved? I'm thinking Heartbleed versus ROT13. One as a programming error. One was a programming error in a program that has been used and tested as regarded as generally secure program, while all, while, while RO, or ROT13 might have been advanced 100 years ago and would be a failure of an attempt at security. So he goes into a couple of ideas here about uh, people are putting more and more information online, not necessarily because they really want to, but because sometimes it's just built into the application or the platform. And he talks about how I also agree that even though services said they had security and that they were secure, how can you really trust them? And if it comes down to your own bad password, it's not really that service's fault. And these are all going to be problems that people have. And he also kind of agrees at the end of the day, we're all just kind of going back and go, oh, well, not my problem. And I guess maybe that's where I was trying to get to last week, but it was all kind of raw and I was still hadn't processed it yet, is isn't this somebody's responsibility? And I was asking last week if it was the developer's responsibility. I think that's an obvious no. Is it the business's responsibility? Gosh, I'd like it to be. I think it should at least be an incentive for them. But it's got to be, I mean, it's. I feel like the answer is, well, it's personal responsibility. It's the end user's responsibility. Uh, that's not a fair answer. Yeah, sure it is. It's obviously the Is it your responsibility to lock the door of your house, or is it the guy who built your house's responsibility? But it, it's not my responsibility if I didn't know the manufacturer of my house built in a secondary oh. secret lock. Okay, so, so you being incredibly stupid is apparently my problem. It's not incredibly stupid. So take Jennifer Lawrence. She actually went through and deleted the photos from her photo stream. It was, a, it was an old image backup from 2010 that still sat on an iCloud server's hard drive of her iPhone that they then downloaded using law enforcement utilities. So not even the utilities she could have used to try this. They had to go pirate law enforcement utilities that have been designed to emulate iTunes that they then pulled down a backup from 2010, mounted the HFS file system, and extracted the photos from the file system. Now, how is it reasonable at all to say that is end-user responsibility? Well, let's see, because that law enforcement utility that you're making a big deal of requires you to plug in your iPhone and tap two buttons. I mean, come on. No, no, they connected it to no, they connected it just to her iCloud account, and, and it emulates okay. an iPhone so, on the other so end. In, in in today's environment, you're saying it's unreasonable to expect a normal, let's say, semi well informed, and I don't mean tech informed. I mean just generically, you know, reads a newspaper informed person to. Assume that, you know, no one's looking at my data. 
right? I have the right. I think this would have gotten you or I. I. I think this problem. I think you would have you would have had enough foresight to delete photos from your photo stream, but you wouldn't have known there was an image backup of an iPhone no, no, you no, don't no, even have minute, anymore on iCloud. No, it wouldn't have. The, you should know the minute something's digital, it is not private. There is no such thing as a private computer file. Period. End of discussion. So what you're suggesting then is that we should all go out and spend an exorbitant amount of money for these devices, and then on top of that, pay a monthly price price to operate these devices and have them expecting. limit their uh, what what we can use them for. What I'm suggesting is that you should assume that if something's digital prepare for it to be in the New York Times. I, if you want to keep a secret, don't use a cell phone, or at least for the thing that's supposed that, to be but secret. But see, this, right? that, this, doesn't, this is like, this, you sound like Richard Stallman. This doesn't scale. You can't take this argument, you can't realistically take this argument when everything we do is digital now. Okay, so it, it's not paranoia when people are actually out to get you, right? And in this case, people are out to get your data. I agree for a celebrity, like, big time, but... You, this isn't just happening to celebrities. This is happening to every, everyday people too. That's I mean, exactly, it's no. That is exactly my point. Like Jennifer Lawrence is an extreme case, and I would even say in her case, she it behooves her to be more knowledgeable than the average consumer. Right. right? Yeah, I agree. So that's right, so. where I think the personal responsibility comes in. Is if you're in a position like hers, uh, then it is it is more it is more incumbent upon you to investigate these kinds of things. But for average people. Like I, I, I was, you know, I mentioned this last week. I don't even think my mom knows that when she takes a picture with her phone, it, it backs up. There's, there's nothing that really would tell her. So let me ask you a question. Back in the days of, uh, you know, film cameras, right? And it's not even that long ago. You took it to CVS. You handed the film to the guy behind the counter. You're implicitly trusting him not to copy your photos, right? Yep. Consider Apple or Samsung or Google or whoever or Microsoft, if you randomly have a Nokia. Um, the man behind the CVS counter. Yeah. I, I mean, I... But see, that I, in that scenario, that is a choice that that person can take. Like, they, that is a whole chain of responsibility that they can see in front of them, understand what the consequences are, and when they hand them that canister of film, they, they, can, they can conceptualize what's going to happen. But when you have this magic no, iPhone... No, it's not. When they start, first started doing those kind of photos, people were shocked when intimate photos would be stolen. But you're physically handing your nudie pictures to a person behind a counter in that case. At least you know that action is happening. There's not. There's no indication on these magic phones that they're uploading photos in the background. There's no like progress bar that does it. There's there's essentially when you sign up a phone, it says, "Would you like to use iCloud? Would you like to use Google Plus Backup?" It's that's the question. Yes or no? Not, so you're saying because you can't see it, you're not responsible for it. How can how can we expect them to know? So if you walk outside naked in the winter, you feel cold, but you don't feel yourself getting pneumonia. See, I don't Are think you... that's not a fair comparison. I think it's more fair to look at like a lot of the integral functions of your car and how it operates. Like, uh, I think that's more of a fair. You go go somewhere where you're not an, a, a, a domain expert, and there right. are people who are domain experts. They probably have an entirely separate, different set of. Well, what do you mean you didn't know that if you drove your car really hard on a cold engine, it was going to tear up your exhaust pipe and put holes in it? You didn't know that. Well, how would I know that? Yeah, okay, but no one is actively like going into my car that I know of and, you know, <laughs> putting booby traps in my car. See, that's the thing. My argument is not that they're technically naive, it's that they're in a very generic sense naive of the world around them. 
people are reading your emails. Like that's a fact, right? And this, I know we're going off on an unfiltered paranoid thing, but it, it's not paranoid. Yeah, I was going to say it's you, not paranoid. That is happening. If nothing else, ad bots are reading like, it. <laughs> like it's funny because you know I was one of the early believers in you know the conspiracy about the government listening to all the phone calls, and I remember telling my mom that, and she told me I lived in a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Fast forward five years, mm-hmm. right? And she's like, "Holy shit." It's only crazy until you're right. And I, you know, I can't think of a case where your digital, uh, I can't think of one sort of digital file that can't be copied, that can't be stolen. Right. Here's where I, here's where I think my fundamental issue with it comes down is the, there is an agenda at play by these companies to lock you more into their platform by getting your photos, by having all of your digital goods with them. And the more automated and transparent that is, the more seamless that is to the end user, the better the lock-in, the more hooked you are onto them. It's, this is the new form of proprietary file lock-in. It's now cloud storage, it's cloud services. And so it is in their best interest, bottom line-wise, to enable all of these data-sucking features up into their servers because that's how they're going to make money on you years down the road. And I believe that desire to monetize you over the long term has pushed these services onto the general public, A, before they're ready, B, before they fully understand what they do, and C, before we've gotten the security aspect of them. And I don't think any of those facts are disputable. I think they're all, I think you can look at everything that's happened in the last couple of years and say all of those things are fundamentally truths. And so obviously we have failed in execution. And now the question is, whose responsibility is it to fix it? Because I was last week proposing maybe it was the developers. That's ludicrous on its face in, re- in reflection. But I think you could make it. I think you're making the argument it's not the company's problem. And I'm trying to make the argument that the people there's they have never been given the opportunity to know any better. So do you know whose problem this ultimately is, other than the end user? Write your congressman. Hmm. I, but guess, that's oh, guess, that's a path, guess, man. That is. Guess, a... guess who else benefits from this? Law enforcement kids. <sighs> Because when they want to read your email, they never have to serve you with a warrant or a subpoena. Well, look at this damn tool, right? Look at this right. tool that was used to extract these photos. They connected it to the iCloud accounts remotely, emulated an iOS device, and sucked it all down. So let's say, you know, if you said it's the developer's fault. So let's let's do a thought experiment, right? Let's say someone wanted, um, you know, fingertip tech customer data for some reason, right? They're not going to go to the customer. They serve us with a warrant, us with a subpoena, and mm-hmm. they drag me to court they force a gag order under pain of you know federal prison and that's it like there's you're living in a in a children's fantasy like you can't you can't unring the bell it's over so if you want to keep secrets you can't put them digital period and All right. Okay, but let's say let's say uh, I mean just to bring this home, I mean because this is really what you're talking about is let's say you and your wife decide to have a child, and your right. wife decides that she wants you to videotape the entire process. Well, now you have got a video that has your wife's naked parts all over it. Are you saying that your only option is to store that on magnetic media that you put on a shelf? That is the only reasonably safe option. Yes. You could see how nobody in the next five to ten years is ever going to ever do that. No, I, I agree with you. I'm just saying, you know, in ten years, if somebody uses that for, I mean, that case is a little more benign, right? No one's going to blackmail you with the birthing video. But, you know, if that were to leak, I shouldn't be shocked because it's somewhere that I don't control it. Hmm. 
So you're saying we are purchasing our own prisons. <laughs> we are building and buying our own prisons built well, and created I mean, from I, gadgets. I don't want to get back on my little you should pay for software horse because everybody gets all pissy when I say that. But um, you assholes didn't want to pay for software. Like that's the end of it. Right? This is really why we need somebody to come along and say, I'll be the premium service that you pay a little bit more for, but we do but all of these things. it's too late because now the laws have been written that – it, it's too late. The third party gets the subpoena and that's yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, th- this would have had, you, you know, when this argument should have been done? 1992. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, mm-hmm. When they were renewing the DMCA. That mm-hmm. was the time for mm-hmm. everybody to get on their activist horse. Mm-hmm. And, you know. You and know, really, day- yeah, it really, when, when we indemnified the telcos, uh, you know, 10 years ago, whatever it was, that was. That was it, right. and now now CIS, now CISA. It's not even it's not CISPA anymore. That's right. CISA, and it's ironically the P stood for privacy. Uh, now CISA is in the is in its way through the House again, and it's essentially indemnifies IT companies for sharing any information with the federal government. So, no, it, it it explicitly indemnifies you actually. Yeah. You In fact, the risk as a company, yeah. the risk is if you don't share government d- data with the government, then You're you liable. are at risk. <laughs> right. And they don't even need a warrant. They yeah. can just say, hey, we'd really like to see this. And, oh, don't worry. You're, right. you're not liable. Yeah. And that's that's a legitimate thing they're working on right now. And it's not – not, No, I'm not, I'm not a crazy – C-I-S-A. CISA. Go ahead. I was just want to – see if people want to Google it, they can. Oh. Oh. And then, see, they cut us off. And they cut us off. Coincidence? I think not. Yes. Oh boy, when you search for CISA, you get a lot of stuff. Never mind. Well, I'll, we've talked about it on filters, so you can check there. Oh, I'm in rare form today. Yeah, we're all fired up. All right, well, we should probably move on. I mean, there's there's no perfect answer to this problem. I'd like yeah. to, I mean, the audience is more than welcome to keep chiming in too, but uh, Aske writes in, and he wanted to get some uh, Vala feedback into the show. So how about that, huh? A little Vala follow-up. He says, hey guys, I would have loved to join the Mumble Room, but you know, time zones. Uh, so anyways, back to the Mono versus Vala discussion. I've been using Vala for more than two years now for elementary OS. And I love that language. There are no good IDEs yet, but Emacs and Vim work amazingly well. And the best part about writing across across platform apps in Vala is that you can bundle resources inside the binary using G resources. As someone asked about that in the mumble room. Mike, take a look at Venom. It's Vala to Mono because it doesn't require a runtime pre-installed in the system. More languages on the topic of more languages equal more growth. He thinks this is false from his personal experience after doing some Coger. I came back to C for a CLI app and found myself passing structures to functions like I did with Maps and Coger. And turns it became pretty close to object-oriented with inheritance. The easiest way to become good at a language is to write more code in that language. He says, "Don't become." A generalist tried to become a master of one. So we go back and forth on that. Sorry for the long email. He says last week's episode was awesome. So a Vala lover, Vala lover. And guess what? They're from elementary OS. Surprise, surprise. Well, they're, they're stealing your Vala too. Sorry. Uh. Vala. Yeah, a little Vala love from PC Wiz in the chat room too. Actually, I've, I have a couple of Vala um, a couple of Vala apps that I like quite a bit. Geary being Geary's one of them. Good. Yeah, Geary's great. Yeah. All right. Well, before we go on to our next topic, and I, oh, did you want to talk about the mono stuff too? I mean, that's, uh, that is up to you, my friend. I don't know if you want to get into it, or if you want to, if you want to sit on it, you can. No, I want to sit on. There's currently a a unfriendly private discussion happening. Okay. All right. I'll let, I'll let. Yeah. We can let. All right. I've got. I got. There's just. There's something I'm trying to work through that you called a long time ago, and now we're watching it happen. Only we're watching it happen on a larger scale. And 
I, I will talk about it in a second. First, I'll tell you about our first sponsor, and then we'll get into this. Before I open up that can of worms, let me tell you about Linux Academy. Go to linuxacademy.com slash coders. linuxacademy.com slash coders. That way you can get the discount. And oh, man, they got some great stuff in the works. There's never been a better time to check out Linux Academy. So what is Linux Academy? Picture it. Sicily, 1984. No, not really. A, a great group of, of educators and Linux enthusiasts got together and said, you know, we could build a platform that people who want to better their skill sets on Linux, on open source, on things like OpenStack, on things like AWS, they need something they can do that they can trust, that they can get good resources from. That's where Linux Academy came from. They've got step-by-step video courses, downloadable comprehensive study guides you can take with you offline, video, audio, text, all of that. It comes with your own server. They spin up a dedicated server when the courseware requires it. You can choose from 7 plus Linux distributions and then the courseware automatically adjusts to the distribution you've chosen, which is awesome. You get to keep track of your progress as you go along. Linux Academy allows you to track right where you're at and then you just pick up when you log back in the next day or the next evening or maybe the next weekend and they're always getting better. They're always adding more content and they have so much in the pipeline. I've gotten a peak, just a peak and I'm really really impressed and for an example they've really beefed up over the summer their open stack and aws certified sysops courses their prep courses for aws a lot of these include scenario based learning so you actually go through a real world deployment and use all aspects of the service I think this is also a great resource if you're self-taught in certain areas, maybe on the LAMP stack or development for Android, things like that where you've, you've poked at it and you feel like maybe if you win over some of the course material, you'll fill in some of those gaps. I've been surprised at how well that's worked for me, even though I've been in IT now for over a decade. I still find that when I go back and review some of these things, I find new ways of doing old tricks. I think it's really neat. And when you combine that with their virtual lab technology, so you get to actually try these things out, it's a pretty awesome combo. So go over to linuxacademy.com slash coders, linuxacademy.com slash coders. That'll get you 20% off your subscription. You go over there, try it out. Then you can get involved in the community. So if you ever are slacking a little bit and you just need a little bit of inspiration, even passively, just go read other folks' success stories or have some questions or Maybe you need to find out what other folks did in your position. That's where their community is really awesome. There's also some job matching going on in there and those things. And their control panel is incredible. Let you pick up right where you're at. You get estimations all along the way. It's a really awesome service. And I've been hearing from a lot of you that are really awesomely impressed. Like you're just sitting, you're sitting back and going, geez, I had no idea all of the things I was going to be able to get down and learn. I had no idea the scope of what they cover. It's amazing. It's I've since since they became a sponsor, I have kept an active subscription myself and I go through there and just freshen up on topics from time to time. It really is a great resource. Linuxacademy.com slash coders. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. All right, Mr. Dominic, um boy, I, maybe it was like a hundred episodes ago. You said in order for Ubuntu or Linux to be successful, there's going to have to be some Androidization, you know, some, some things that are going to have to change to make it a little easier for developers to target and things like that. Well, in general, this has happened a lot on Linux with SystemD. You've probably heard it mentioned before, and SystemD does a lot of things. And we continue. Now, it's essentially gotten buy-off by the majority of anybody that matters in Linux. So you've got Red Hat and Fedora and Debian and Ubuntu and Arch Linux and SUSE have all switched over to Systemd. And yet, there continues to be this cage rattling from the quote-unquote IT press, mostly IT world and info world, 
that just go on and on and and proclaim it is the end of Linux. Linux is no longer a viable platform. Developers should avoid using Linux. Like here is a couple of headlines from the last week, uh, two weeks. You have some windows in my Linux. Systemd rampages through the Linux community like Godzilla through Tokyo. And my favorite one, it's time to split Linux up. Oh, 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 and here's another great one. Uh, Linux to experience a mass exodus to FreeBSD because of Systemd. Uh, how do you have something, Mike, where, in general, it makes Linux a better platform, easier for developers to target, more commonality amongst all the distribution, reduces fragmentation, adds competitive features that server class and desktop class operating systems need to have, provides a common API for a lot of things that were disparate across distributions for years. How do you have something like that get spun into this twisted, distorted, the world's going to end, and does that kind of thing as a developer for you, when you see this kind of stuff watching Linux, do you see this, and does it make you recoil and go, whoo, that looks like a bag of herd I want to avoid? Oh, every, every time, uh, yeah, every time I, I look at a Linux box, I just, you know, I cringe. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh-huh. the pain is, is visceral. It's uh-huh. really, it's really quite brutal. What's wrong with that? <laughs> is that not what you were talking about? Wait. No, no. I'm wondering, does this, do these kind of dramas that the Linux community manages to conjure up out of pretty much almost nothing, uh, do they manage to, do they, do they, do they reach the developer community? Do they seem distasteful from a distance? So, yeah, I, I learned something about uh, you Linux people. No one hates you more than yourself. Yeah, good call. In a, in a weird way. Like Mac people tend to, you know, they've got this weird fraternal order of police style brotherhood thing going on here. It's, it's Honestly, it's kind of creepy. Uh, Windows guys tend to be pretty accepting of everybody. They're like, yeah, whatever. You know. But the Linux guys, man, like, okay, you're condescending to Mac people. You look down on Windows people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, like, you put an Ubuntu guy in an arch in a room and just... Just stand out of the way. Yeah, you're right. It, it's kind of horrible. So you um, think it's innate to like the uh, the type of geeks that? Uh... I think it's because you guys are much more in it for the technology. So I don't know. I mean, like, I I always feel like Linux guys tend to identify themselves more by being Linux guys than anything else. So what gets me is it seems like a lot of what's happening is so clearly what needs to happen to make Linux in a position that as commercial platforms sort of retract a little bit into more niches and a general computing platform is needed to fill in the devices like the Internet of Things and smartwatches and toasters and crockpots and laptops and Chromebooks, that that common platform needs to become more standardized in order for it to be successful so that way more people can write applications for it. It seems so obvious what is happening to Linux right now is fundamentally required for its large-scale continued success. However, that doesn't stop anybody from literally saying it's the end of the world, people need to stop using it, don't write applications for it anymore. And it... I... I, I can't. What I cannot put my finger on is if it actually harms the progress of a platform and actually gives a platform a bad name, or if history ends up proving these people as alarmists and how ridiculous. Like in retrospect, we'll look back and see how ridiculous they looked. And I can't tell because I don't think we're through it yet. But my sense, my sense is, is that it impedes progress at least. Like in, it, it, it at least slows down adoption. It slows down traction, which is a bad thing overall. You think I'm overreacting? Um, 
So I, I think there's certainly a truth in all this weird internal competition. It's like the JavaScript thing, right? Competition is good, but really destructive competition is bad. Um, and I, I feel like, like I, I read some of the Linux forums. Y'all are pretty nasty to each other <laughs> in a really weird way. Sorry. No, but it, it, almost like, you know, I, like, you know, obviously you read the Ubuntu forums, you see like a lot of Windows people going in there. And they get a little bit of snark, but generally like they get help, right? But you mention a desktop manager that the person who originally posted doesn't like. And holy crap. Get out of here. Yeah, it, it's just like full on, I hate you, you, you murdered my dog. Like, I think it's wasted effort. I I know I know it's 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 the I, I brought it up because I think you I think you kind of touched on it a long time ago and now I think we're seeing it play out and I'm just kind of surprised that more people don't see it the way you saw it a long time ago I don't know what I'm trying to get to other than it's very frustrating for somebody who has been an advocate for a platform to see it sort of struggle with things that it really seems like effort could be better spent in other places oh well I won't I'll get off my soapbox about it. It's just hard for me to watch from afar. I'll probably complain more in Linux Unplugged, though. I mean, I'm not done complaining, except for today, I think. Hey, Mr. Dominic, is there anything else we want to cover today? Yeah, I think we need to cover the one true markdown. No, I'm kidding. Never mind. Oh, yeah. There was, I guess, a bit of a markdown thing. So we got pinged about that on Twitter, and I did a little reading. Did you see what that was about? Yeah, so, like, you know, John Gruber made markdown and has basically abandoned it. Shocking. Um so, you know, uh, the coding horror guy, Jeff, Jeff Atwood and company, were trying to, I guess, for lack of a better term, make the canonical, up-to-date, supported yeah. markdown. Yeah. And apparently that's not okay because I don't know why that wouldn't be okay, to be honest with you. I'm guessing <laughs> ego. It, it feels like an ego thing to me, like... Like, it's just something that's important for Gruber to say that I did Markdown. I'm the Markdown guy. I think Gruber believes that one of the things that makes Markdown good is that it hasn't changed much. And so he didn't like that they called, they wanted to call it Standard Markdown. I guess he took issue with that name because Standard Markdown so like, would be his standardmarkdown.com, there's a thing, this domain was disabled at the request of John Gruber, and then it links to the Coding Horror blog explaining why. Yeah. So first off, no one has ever uh, disabled a domain at my request, and I'm a little jealous. Well, he's John Gruber. Yeah, I don't get it. Like, yeah. I, I have to be honest. I have no idea. I think their over-response is because they're trying to they're, – they want to pull this off, and they need his cooperation to do it. So they made a big apology to him to, you know, get his – Yeah, but, like, is he, like, you know, the pope? Does he require a public apology? Well, yeah, he's a public figure, and it's his it's – his, his language. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess they felt like he did. Uh, I mean, but see, what I don't understand is there's, there's already different iterations of Markdown. There's there's Markdown Extended. There's GitHub Markdown. Like there's GitHub Markdown. Well, he didn't like the name, right? So let's not overstate what he was doing. He didn't like the name. Um, he has no, supposedly has no stated issue with people, you know, supporting Markdown in different ways. Yeah, and, and now he, I guess he's okay with him calling it Common Markdown. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like, you know, like, this is the cheap markdown. This is the crap markdown. Yeah. Why not just call it, like, markdown 2.0? I don't know. I, I, I mean... Yeah, this is... Yeah, they, so they're, sh- they're shutting down standard markdown. They deeply apologize. Why? And they say... They got, a, they got a long, thoughtful email from Gruber. 
and he indicated uh, that no form I'm, of the word markdown is acceptable to him in this case, and now they're using common mark. So he doesn't I, want any markdown used at all. I, I'm sure it was just like the email I sent to him, long and very thoughtful. So a strongly specified, highly compatible implementation of markdown called common mark now. So I don't, I don't get it, right? You know, if I had written an email to someone like that, they would have laughed their way to the bank and probably posted it somewhere, right? Like, yeah, if you're lucky. If I'm lucky. If not, they would just ignore it. So how come, you know, people criticize Linux a lot for having the, oh, Linus Torvald took a shit, so we have to write an article about it. Right. Isn't this worse? Right. Like, isn't this like you had a project and for fear of angering some fucking old prick in an ivy tower you're gonna stop it well i guess it's it's because people like markdown so much that they have reverence for its creator I use markdown I, all the time and it's really shitty i don't i don't exactly like, it's got to be because of his public position and yeah i mean that's what it like, is markdown's only good with github because they fixed it yeah yeah i mean we use markdown and you know it's yeah it's limited i could see it i could see things that i'd like, like to i don't i don't get like if this was you know like rms or someone who I don't know. I, I feel like Gruber in particular gets a lot more consideration than he ought to. Um, mm, I don't... <sighs> you know, he's not like one of the original Unix guys. He didn't invent computing. You know what I mean? It just seems like he's a very picky, very design-driven guy who doesn't like anything if you ever read any of his stuff. So we have that in common. Um, Zane points out he does have a trademark on the name. So there's that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. There's a couple of uh, folks in the Apple community. So that he has have, a trademark, but is he using it in commerce? Does he sell it? Because that trademark probably doesn't hold up. But anyway, I mean, there, there's a lot of weird – if you want to go to the legal route, which I'm sure no one ever does in the developer community, there's there, – <sighs> There are figureheads in, the com- in all communities that uh, when, they, when they fart, everybody sniffs. And he's one of them, just like Linus is, and uh, there's others too. I mean, I can't imagine, like, if I were ever in that position, wouldn't you avoid saying things about really dumb shit just to, like, not be a jerk? Or no, or would you kind of throw weight around and be like, no, this is, you know. I I, I have the sense I would try not to, but who knows, I guess. I mean, I guess um, it's like it starts to corrupt you because after. You start to see, like, well, Markdown's part of my brand. Right. Is that what it is that he has I think a so. brand? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's part of his. Daring Fireball, John Gruber brand. And because Markdown, and the thing is, the more popular Markdowns become, the more uh, sort of probably that cycle sort of reinforces itself. So yeah, I think it is that. I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I you know, like I have no personal dis- you know, dislike for Gruber. I mean, I think sometimes he's a jerk to people when he does stuff like this. Mm-hmm. But I just can't imagine... Like, there's no financial reason for him to do this because he's in charge for Markdown. All he's doing is making Jeff Atwood's product. I think he wants to make it clear that he is not endorsing it. I don't. I think he wants Markdown to be known as Markdown is. If you call it Markdown, that's John Gruber's creation. And if you want something else, then that's an entirely different thing. He doesn't want the name Markdown in it. He wants. He wants Markdown to be known for. This is what you get when you get Markdown. It's all right, Mike. It's all right. Yeah, all right. It's it's a weird situation. It is. I I agree because it's it's one of these things where people publish code, they publish projects, and they let them languish, 
and then you go touch them or fork them or whatever and all of a sudden you get like this torrent, torrential anger and like like what are you doing this is perfect don't mess it's like wait a minute this is this hasn't been touched for four years i thought it'd be okay if i just took it and i mean you put it up here for public and i, I i'm sorry i didn't mean to i mean it, that kind of those things happen it's not just markdown this one just happens to be a public example of it yeah okay i think we've right. done hater hour for long enough yeah I, I just you know it'd be interesting to hear from like anybody who's been in a situation like this markdown one where it was a non-commercial thing that, for some reason, just became, you know. I agree. Yeah. We do have a vast audience out there. Perhaps you have encountered something similar to this. Contact us over Subspace Radio. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, choose Coda Radio from the drop-down. Mr. Dominic, where should we send folks to find you throughout the week? Uh, they should find me at... Um... I've got my own Twitter handle, crap, at Dumanuko. Yeah, everywhere. That'd be good. I'm Chris LES on there. And don't forget, you can join us. Go over to jblive.tv, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for the times that will be converted to your local time zone. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of Coda Radio. See you right back here next week. Mm-hmm.